The Red Cross warns that landmines could pose a threat for decades to come following the Kahovka Dam breach in Ukraine. They could still be in minefields, or they could be in the middle of roads, someone's backyard, or in their own home. Plus, the White House says it sees signs of a deepening military partnership between Russia and Iran. Moscow has not only received hundreds of Iranian drones, but is also working with Iran to produce them from inside Russia. And later in the program, stories from some of the women serving in the war. Today is Friday, June 9th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening. I'm Steve Miller in Washington. The Red Cross is warning that landmines that have been uprooted and dispersed by floodwaters that are surging downstream from the breached Kahovka Dam could pose a grave danger to civilians for decades to come. Reuters' Matthew Liratonda starts us off. The flooding from the destruction of the Nova Kahovka Dam in Ukraine is continuing to spread, now hitting the city of Mykolaiv. And the Red Cross is warning that one particular side effect of this disaster could pose an incredible danger to civilians even decades from now. Unexploded landmines and other munitions that have been swept away by the flood and now could literally be anywhere. They could still be in minefields or they could be in the middle of roads, someone's backyard, or in their own home. As one Red Cross official put it, the only thing we do know is that the mines are somewhere downstream. Andrew Matthewson is with the Halo Trust, an NGO that clears landmines and has been working in the Mykolaiv region. The immediate threat to us and our staff and civilians is the fact that mines might move, and that will, you know, that will lead to the to the need for us to resurvey these areas, remark them as minefields. Um, and, and obviously re, reorganize ourselves in terms of how to approach the clearance problem. Beyond that, the mines might not only move, but they might also fluctuate in terms of the way they're laid, which poses another risk. We've seen 5,000 mines in that region in the last month alone. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's basically impossible to give an estimate. I mean, the contamination is so, so massive. Um, the conflict is ongoing. Um, you know, it, it, the size of Ukraine itself, you know, the front line is 1,200 miles. Um, yeah, it, it, unfortunately, it's just really impossible to say. That could be, yeah, could be 1%, could be 0. 0.0001. Meanwhile, evacuations from the flood are ongoing, but the fighting around it hasn't stopped. Ukrainian authorities said Thursday that a civilian was killed and several others wounded in what they called targeted strikes by Russian shelling in one of the cities hit by the flood, Kherson. Russia also accuses Ukraine of shelling rescue workers in parts of the region that it occupies. Matthew Laratanda of Reuters News. Now, as we just heard, there is a lot of concern about the effect mines may have on Ukraine's civilian population. And the Ukrainian government has previously said it may take decades to eradicate the country of explosive devices. For Yuri Voichenko, working on his farm in Kharkiv, Ukraine, under Russian occupation was, in his words, nothing but dead farm workers and injured cattle. 
Russian forces pulled back from the area in September of 2022, but they left mines scattered throughout his fields. Anna Kosterchenko has that part of our coverage. The family of 43-year-old Yuri Vovchenko has been farming in the Kharkiv region for five generations. And he continues to do so today in the middle of a war, having endured months of Russian occupation. The Russians are gone, but the mines they planted in his fields remain. That has forced Vovchenko and his workers to clear this land over 6,000 hectares by hand. It was very dangerous to walk through these fields and prepare soil for sowing. But we are doing it to survive. If we don't do it this year, there will be little hope to survive the next one. Vovchenko gets the grain he sowed from a fellow farmer in central Ukraine. His stocks were burned by the Russians when they occupied the region from March 2022 to September 2022, and Vovchenko recalls feeling constant terror. They called us all Nazis, and you can't argue with a man who is pointing a gun at you. He recalls how they locked the cattle in the barns and wouldn't allow locals to feed the animals. He says they also put anti-personal mines in the barns with the cattle. Vovchenko once had over 2,000 cows. Only 200 survived. The cows would move, step on the mines and get blown into pieces. Shrapnel also hit many of them, so if one cow stepped on a mine, another two or three next to it would get hit and bleed to death. Before the war, Vovchenko worked with a French yogurt producer operating in Ukraine. Today, however, he is selling his milk at a local market to get at least some money. This income goes to paying his workers. He estimates the Russian invasion cost him some $15 million since the start of the war. And while this damage is repairable, some other losses are not, says Vovchenko. During the occupation, Russian forces captured six of his workers, tortured them and then burned them alive. After the deoccupation, DNA analysis showed that these were our people that were burned in cellars. Before the war, Vovchenko's farm gave some 250 people jobs. Today, it is one of the only places in the town of Balaklia that provides the community with work. Anna Kostyuchenko for VOA News, Kharkiv region, Ukraine. Ukraine on Thursday appeared to be launching its long-anticipated counteroffensive to try to recapture land in the eastern and southern parts of the country that Russia seized in the earliest weeks of the war more than a year ago. Anna Chernikova joins us now from Kyiv with more. Yeah, it looks like that certain act activities, let's put it this way, are, are undergoing. And we even have some official confirmations from the Ministry of Defense. So military, um, if we talk about military people and those at the front lines, they do not really command and they do not really talk much about it. But uh, Ministry of uh, Defense, um, the Deputy Minister of Defense, Ms. Hanna Mahler, she confirmed that Ukrainians made certain actions at certain parts of the front line. Uh, what we're talking about, uh, and this is according to, again, to the Ukrainian official uh, reports, uh, we're talking about Bakhmut direction and Zaporizhia direction. Uh, today, we've got confirmation that actually Ukrainian forces managed to advance uh, in the Bakhmut direction. The advance, according again, ag- according to the Ministry of Defense, 
the advance uh, is uh, around 1.2 kilometers in some areas, so some were more, some were less. Uh, in terms of the Parisia region, we don't really have uh, particular details. And I want to turn our attention to the Kahovka Dam. What are you hearing about what officials are doing in the area, how they're helping residents? And also, since the reservoir was there to help cool the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, what's the status of the plant today? For the moment, that evacuation is ongoing. And uh, unfortunately, Russian forces continue to shell the city of Kherson and Kherson region. Uh, now, the Parisian nuclear power plant is switched off. So f- f- out of six uh, reactors, five are completely switched off. One is still uh, kind of operating, uh, not at, at full power. So for the moment, there are reports that situation is under control and there is enough cooling water. Anna Chernikova reports for us from Kiev, Ukraine, and we'll be hearing more from her later in the program. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. At the White House on Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced an economic partnership focusing on energy transition and critical technologies. They also vowed continued support for Ukraine in its defense against the Russian invasion. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Wiedekuswara is up next. A deal to ensure U.S.-U.K. leadership in critical and emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence, economic security, digital transformation, and clean energy transition, was announced Thursday by President Joe Biden during a visit by British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. I think we had a really good discussion today about our economic relationship. We launched negotiations on critical materials uh, and uh, an agreement to deal with climate crisis. The so-called Atlantic Declaration will reduce strategic dependencies on adversarial powers, Sunak said. Countries like China and Russia are willing to manipulate and exploit our openness, steal our intellectual property, use technology for authoritarian ends, or withdraw crucial resources like energy. They will not succeed. Sunak is under domestic pressure for a comprehensive free trade agreement with the U.S. that his party promised in 2019. But there's no support from the U.S. Congress, said Leslie Vinjamuri, director of the U.S. and the Americas program at Chatham House via Skype. What Britain's trying to do now is forget about the, you know, comprehensive free trade issues and and go for wins, uh, selective wins that don't have to go through Capitol Hill. Ahead of the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania in July, the meeting between leaders of the top two military donors to Ukraine is also intended to signal commitment to support Kyiv in defending itself against the Russian invasion. We will have the funding necessary to support Ukraine as long as it takes. In his first visit to the United States since taking office, Sunak also met congressional leaders, including Republican Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. He paid respects at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and stopped by a baseball game. Patsy Widakuswara, viewing news at the White House. Now, according to the White House, Moscow has not only received hundreds of Iranian drones, but is working with Iran to produce them from inside Russia. It's a sign of a deepening military partnership between the two countries, they say. 
And Patsy joins us now with more details. Yeah, so this is information that I received from the National Security Council of the White House Thursday evening. They are alleging, are saying that Moscow has not only received hundreds of Iranian drones, but is also working with Iran to produce them from inside Russia. So this is something that the White House does sometimes. They send us information, declassified intelligence, kind of to to give an idea about what Iran and Russia is doing. And right now they're saying that they have information that Russia is receiving these materials from Iran, that they need to build a drone manufacturing plant inside Russia that, according to the White House, will be fully operational early next year. And they have released this satellite imagery of the planned location of the plant, which is in Russia's Alabuga Special Economic Zone. And other than the satellite imagery, the White House is also sending us this kind of route of where the drones that are currently built in Iran are shipped from across the Caspian Sea from Iran to Russia and then used operationally by Russian forces against Ukraine. Now, this is also coming as there have been reports of both Russia and Iran you know, purchasing military equipment from one another. Not only the Shahed-136 drones, but Tehran is reportedly purchasing billions of dollars of Russian military equipment, uh, helicopters, radars, uh, fighter aircraft. Um is, is this like a full-blown partnership between the two? Well, that's what the White House is alleging. They are saying that this is, and I quote, a full-scale defense partnership that is harmful to Ukraine, to Iran's neighbors, and to the international community. Um, that was John Kirby again. And he said that the administration is working with allies to hold both Moscow and Tehran accountable through existing and additional sanctions and also export restrictions. And we do have some confirmation from our European Bureau Chief Miroslava Gondadze in Warsaw, who this morning spoke to Ukrainian Air Force Force spokesperson Yuri Ilnat. And um, the Ukrainian spokesperson said that Russia has increasingly deployed these drones to bombard Ukrainian cities in recent weeks and they're really hard to detect they are slow they fly very low they're 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 being sent by Moscow from all directions all over Ukraine and the Ukrainian air defense is only able to focus on the protection of big cities infrastructure and so on so this is certainly something that the Ukrainian are, are worried about and something that that the White House wants to disrupt. Um, and one of the things that the White House is trying to do right now is they are creating this new advisory to help businesses and other governments be better understand the risks that are posed by Iran's drone programs and uh, the, the practices that Tehran uses to procure components to make these. So essentially, they want to make businesses and governments aware that this is happening so that they don't inadvertently help Russia and Tehran in producing this, these drones. One last question, Patsy. This is all coming as the 2015 Iran Nuclear Agreement, which is more more formally known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, is being sunsetted. So, what is the administration, you know, rolling out and saying about as this really landmark agreement is coming to a close? Yeah. So, this is one of the things that the administration is trying to do to preempt that, right? I mean, obviously. 
the timing co coincides with what you said, the, the sun setting of these clauses uh, in October, actually, so just around the corner. Um, one of the clauses uh, in G JCPOA that bans specifically the import and export of missile-related technology will formally end. So essentially, in a few months, in October, it will be legal officially to trade Iranian missiles and drones. And, you know, obviously, the JCPOA is already in some parts obsolete because the U.S. under the Trump administration withdrew from the agreement in 2018, but it was never officially nullified by its other signatories, you know, Iran, EU, Russia, and China. And so from a legal standpoint, that sun those sunset clauses and when they end matter, and the administration really just wants to put businesses on notice uh, to preempt and uh, to highlight the risks of um what will happen if businesses trade in Iranian drones and missiles. Patsy Widikuswara is VOA's White House Bureau Chief. Patsy, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Steve. The White House also on Friday announced an additional $2.1 billion in new security assistance to Ukraine. Munitions and materials included in this latest tranche is expected to be delivered later this year. Since the Russian invasion in February of 2022, tens of thousands of women have voluntarily joined the armed forces of Ukraine. As of the end of last year, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense says almost 60,000 women were serving. Miroslava Gangadze met with two female former journalists who have been fighting for Ukraine for a year. We first met Margarita Levchachenko near Izum in September. She accompanied a Voice of America TV crew looking into suspected Russian war crimes. Fragile looking but brave, she showed us the way to a newly discovered mass grave. Now a press officer for the Eastern Army Command, she was called to the capital. We met again at the office of Ukrainska Pravda, an online newspaper where she had worked before the war. When the Russians marched on Kyiv in February 2022, Rivchachenko's father signed up for the military and so did her boyfriend. She decided to do the same, enrolling in the territorial defense. I think that uh, if I had a gun, I, I would do something more for my, for my life. I didn't want to go out of Ukraine. I would to do something more for my country. She says the hardest thing about the war is to learn about the death of her comrades. I'm, I'm not scared to, to go back to Donetsk region uh, and to go to the position just because I feel really comfortable with uh, my guys. But uh, it's really hard to, to think about my people, my friends, my father, who now in Bakhmut, uh, my boyfriend, who are serving too, so um, it's it's not hard to serve. It's really hard to um, to wait from someone from the front. Former TV reporter Anastasia Blischik also enrolled in the armed forces of Ukraine. A native of Kherson, she says that for three years she wanted to join the army, but hesitated. That changed when the Russian launched a full-scale offensive, walking along Mikhailovska Square in Kiev next to the wrecked Russian armed vehicles on display. She remembers that decisive moment. On February 24th, I took my fiancé, a journalist, a soldier of the 95th Air Assault Brigade, Alexander Makov, to the military commissariat. On February 25th, he called me and said, how are you? 
I said that I would sign up for the military, and he supported my decision. Then tragedy came. In May, her fiancé was killed in the battles for Izum. It seemed that people like him were immortal. I thought it could happen to anyone, but not to him. And when I got the call, I didn't want anyone to hear what I heard. It was tough. Nearly a year later, away from the front, despite big victories, her grief is still raw. It's easier for me there. I saw with my eyes the liberation of Izum, the liberation of the village of Dovhenki, where Sasha died. Izum and Dovhenki are ours, but it doesn't make me feel any better. Pliszczyk, who is eager to go back to the front, explains what victory means to her. Victory will come not only when we return all our territories, but when we cleanse our country of all traitors, when all Ukrainians understand that our language is the most powerful weapon, and when there is respect for all of those who are now on the front. Miroslava Gungadze, VOA News, Kyiv, Ukraine. As Russia's targeted attacks on the Ukrainian energy infrastructure continue, Ukraine is being forced to rethink its energy future. While inventing ways to quickly restore and improve the resilience of its energy system, Ukraine is also looking for green energy solutions. Now, as I promised, Anna Chernikova is back with her story from Irpin, one of the hardest-hit areas of the Kyiv region. For months, the Ukrainian energy system has been the target of Russian attacks that leave homes, schools and hospitals in the dark, sometimes for days at a time. This is encouraging Ukrainians not only to find unconventional ways to quickly rebuild energy facilities, but to consider possible alternative energy sources. This school in Irpin is the first to get its own solar power station, thanks to an initiative of the non-profit Energy Act for Ukraine Foundation and the support of international donors. Yuliana Onishuk, Foundation founder and CEO, explained that the station consists of solar panels, inverters and a system that allows the school to store solar energy and use it during power outages. Our main aim was to ensure that the system storages are always fulfilled with electricity. In order to ensure that, we developed a technical solution that uh, foresees that if we have a sunny day, the electricity that will be generated from the solar power plant will go to storage systems in order to fulfill them. It's a priority number one. The station's battery storage system can provide the school with a power supply for up to four hours. The school's principal explains that the solar power station will allow schools to operate using power that is cheaper and greener than that provided by gasoline generators. This is a breakthrough for education, that we simply become energy independent. 
for Ukraine, one year into Russia's full-scale assault, energy security is one of its main priorities. The foundation plans to install similar solutions in a total of 100 schools and medical institutions across the country. One year on, the war has created many new challenges that Ukrainians face daily. But it has also created an environment for rapid innovation that is key to survival. Anna Chernikova for VOA News, Irpin, Ukraine. And that's going to do it for us this week. Be sure to stay up to date with our continuing coverage, not only on Ukraine, but news and events from around the world. You can do so 24 hours a day at voanews.com, as well as on our social media platforms. Just be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Steve Miller. Be well, be safe, and good night. This is the voice of America, Washington, Papa, Zip, D.C.